Welcome to Tales from Abroad, an education abroad podcast that explores stories from students, staff, faculty, and friends of the IUP community about their time abroad. Maybe you're a prospective student or a colleague of a podcast guest, or you just like to travel. Either way, we hope these stories inspire you to look at life from a global perspective and take the next step in traveling abroad with or without students in tow. I'm Jess Malvahill, avid international traveler and seasoned international educator. So come along with me and let's listen to some tales from abroad with our very own Crimson Hawks. Our guest today is Frances Allard, an archaeologist who holds degrees in anthropology, biology, and museum studies. Dr. Allard's research focuses on the archaeology of East Asia. He has studied and worked in China at various times since the early 1980s and has carried out field work in China, Vietnam, and Mongolia. In the department, he teaches biological anthropology courses on China, culture and archaeology, and on occasion, language and culture, and courses on human evolution. He has traveled to Asia with IUP students on numerous occasions. Welcome to the show. Hi. So, uh, Dr. Allard, can you tell us a little bit about you? Um, I was born and raised in Canada and Quebec. Um, I was raised in a French-Canadian family in Montreal, and I spent my, the first 20 years of my life uh, there. Um, I'm not sure if it's relevant, but I went to nine or ten different schools before I ended up in college, never being kicked out, I, might, I should add right now. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, we moved around um, eastern Canada a lot, and uh, my first experience abroad was uh, in England. Uh, where I moved with my family when I was 12, and I was there for a few years, but my English was not <clears throat> um, good enough at that point, so my parents placed me into a, a French school in London, England for a few years. So um, I had a, an initial taste of traveling at a young age, and we traveled around Europe in the mid-1970s, and when I returned to Canada, to Montreal with my family, I started to go to school in English and ended up at McGill University, where I got my first degree in science, actually in marine biology, which is quite unlike anything I do now. And um, that's when um, I started getting interested, by chance really, in East Asia, um, specifically China, uh, in my early 20s. Um, after I graduated with my marine biology degree and decided that was not going to be my life, I did uh, various things. I worked in a bookstore. Um, I started a graduate program in physiology, actually. And then, um, and then but, but at that time, I started getting involved in an association in, uh, in Montreal, the volunteer, uh, the, the East Asian Volunteer Association. Um, mostly uh, that uh, catered mostly to Chinese immigrants. And I started teaching English actually there uh, in that uh, uh, on, on Saturdays every week. And that's where I started meeting people from China, especially Hong Kong, and became quite interested in, uh, in the culture and the food and the language. Uh, I met uh, my girlfriend there at that point and when I decided that I wanted to be neither a marine biologist nor a physiologist, 
or work for the rest of my life in book in a bookstore, from which, by the way, I I uh, I almost got fired because I was spending too much time in the stacks reading. That's a true story. <laughs> so I wasn't going to. I didn't want to sell the books. I just wanted to read them. After all that, <clears throat> when my girlfriend uh, returned to Hong Kong, I just thought, why not? So I packed up uh, and uh, left for Hong Kong with her and um, became a high school teacher. So I was a high school teacher for a few years where uh, I taught French and uh, math, um, especially French and math and a few other topics in a religious school whose uh, mother house, I think, I don't know if that's the word in English, the mother house of this congregation, Sisters of the Immaculate Conception was in fact in Montreal. So there was a connection there and that's, uh, there were French Canadian nuns in that school, which was interesting. So I moved to Hong Kong in 1983, um, spent a few years there and lived with uh, uh, my friend's family. So for a couple of years where, um, well, it was, uh, you know, they were middle class and living in a small apartment. Um, there were seven of us. And uh, so I quickly learned uh, Cantonese. So I learned Cantonese before any other, any other language at that point. Um, and after a few years, um, so my, my early years really uh, were years of uh, kind of adventure and discovery, but also I could never really detach myself from my educational goals. I always wanted to be involved in education in some way or other. So. After a few years of that, I moved to England and I went to, um, to Cambridge where I got another bachelor. By then I had the marine biology bachelor, but this one in, in archaeology. Um, by then, you know, at that time it was not possible to, um, to do field work in East Asia. China was closed for this kind of uh, research. Uh, so I focused on I focused on um, um, Europe, so I studied the archaeology of Europe. But I always had um, China in my mind, and um, but I didn't know how that was going to work out in the long run. Um, after my bachelor in England, I went to the University of Toronto and got a master's in museum studies, thinking that I was going to work in a museum. But when I graduated, um, I won a scholarship to go to, to go to go to China actually. So I went to China, so this time as a student, and I did a, a research study in um, on museums as they were changing in the uh, late 80s. Um, and I spent a year there and I, I was at the university at Nanjing University. Uh, and uh, that's really when um, I decided that I was going to combine, you know, my interest, my fascination really with uh, China, with um, uh, my fascination with archaeology. So I, I wanted to ask, um, how did you make the jump to archaeology? What was it from all the reading you were doing? Or? So, you know, one, one thing I've learned um, and that people who travel uh, also learn is that um, a lot of these opportunities come come up by chance um, and you never put them together until 
you're, you're given the opportunity to put them together or someone points that out to you. As far as archaeology was concerned, uh, when I lived, um, when I went to McGill University in my early 20s, I was a scuba diver. And, uh, and I did a lot of scuba diving in, in rivers. And one thing that I loved doing uh, when scuba diving was pick up garbage from the rivers, but really old garbage, like old bottles and pots and, and uh, Native American pipes. So my interest in the past, really, uh, and archaeology, if you can call it that, there is a field uh, called underwater archaeology, but we were certainly not working systematically enough to be called that. <laughs> um, really started there. And, but when I went to Hong Kong, I also, I met, uh, there was a woman in the, the school where I taught, the high school where I taught, who um, was an archaeologist who had an archaeology degree from England. And so she got me interested in archaeology, and I started to work with the Hong Kong Archaeological Association as a volunteer. That was in 1983. And it's also the reason why um, I decided to go to England to, to do another archaeology degree. But of course, by the time I was in Toronto, it was museum studies. And so there were, it was neither archaeology nor China. It was only when I went back to China with the fellowship that everything was put together. So. Um, Everything came together late in my case uh, when, when I reached 28, which is when I decided, all right, now I need to, to formally, systematically, clearly put these two interests together, which were China and archaeology, which is when I moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, I came to Pittsburgh in 1989 and started my PhD, um, studying with one of the few professors at that time who specialized in Chinese archaeology. Um, and um, University of Pittsburgh had a fellowship, which, which I, I won, and uh, so that allowed me to pay for tuition, and uh, I graduated in 1995. So, uh, and so everything after 1995, really, um, all my travels, the majority of my travels after 1995 to Asia had to do with my profession rather than adventures although I had adventures after 1995 as well. So we talked about uh, why you chose the different locations um, and, and you have had many of them, um, many different experiences. Is there anything that stands out that you've learned um, other than getting a degree and learning about archeology? span Is there anything else that uh, that you've learned from these different trips abroad and these different experiences, living experiences? Well, um, in general, um, when I've traveled, you know, when I decided to go to live in Hong Kong, my family wondered why I would do such a thing. Not that my parents were anti-travel. Remember, they had taken us to England and traveling throughout Europe, but why was I going to become a high school teacher in, in Hong Kong? And at that point, the reason really was, well, you know, I thought that would be pretty cool and something I hadn't done. The thing is, when I got to Hong Kong, I realized that, uh, you know, conditions were different from the, the comfortable life I'd been raised in. And from that point on, I decided to always take chances um, and in uh, trying to, you know, to push my limits a little bit. And so, 
as a general kind of lesson over the past decades, I would say that uh, every time uh, that I, I pushed these limits and tried something new, something good came out of it. But I have to say, usually something bad came out of it too. It was never always fantastic. You know, when you try something new, uh, suddenly um, you're in a place where um, you don't speak the language or you're sick, you're ill, or you miss home, or you've missed your train, or you're in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, the adventure doesn't sound that great at that moment. But when you keep at it, um, almost always by the time you've ended that experience, that piece of travel, portion of travel, um, you tend to be, you know, happy with yourself that you took the chance. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that many travelers talk about, right? That as long as we push our limits a little bit, we're going to get something out of it. And that's, that's, typically, that's typically what happens. I would say as a general lesson, that's absolutely true. As a professor, um, and now a professor at the university um, in archaeology, in studying, you've had quite uh, in a lot of experiences to travel um, in your professional life, um, does any of those really stand out as something spectacular? Uh, do you mean when, um, as as a as a professional archaeologist like working in East Asia? Yes. Not as a teacher necessarily. Correct. Well, we we're going to get to that too. <laughs> right. So, um, so of course, if you're an archaeologist and you want to um, do research in Chinese archaeology or East Asian archaeology. Um, I mean, that's only going to work if you're happy doing it and if the process of discovery is exciting. You know, the process of discovery for an archaeologist, uh, that might not work for someone else. But for me, as an archaeologist, whenever I did archaeology, which sometimes involved excavations, sometimes involved surveys, and sometimes involved, you know, analyzing uh, objects in a museum, and sometimes more simply just participating in a conference. All of that was exciting to me. But as far as uh, kind of the wow kind of excitement, uh, that's happened a few times. And, and I would say there's one that sticks out particularly in my mind. And it was in either 2000 or 2001 when I decided to start a project in Mongolia. And, uh, and I knew nothing about Mongolia, but neither did anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was really hard to, there was, some, there was uh, someone um, who teaches in the United States now who was quite familiar. So, you know, I, I got as much information as I could out of him. But ultimately, I went there. And on one particular occasion, I was, uh, we had rented a Jeep um, with, um, with a historian. And um, we were traveling through central Mongolia in the steppes, really I mean, quite isolated. Um, and we were, uh, there were no roads. Uh, it's all grassland, right? There's no private property there. And we were on this dirt, well, there's a dirt road. Uh, and, we, and then I started seeing these piles of rocks everywhere. And um, this, this sounds like out of a novel, but I'm gonna tell you what happened in one particular instance. It's totally true. There was a thunderstorm uh, and, uh, the Jeep stopped because we couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of us. 
and he stopped, he went off the road near some stones. And then the rain stopped. And when we got out, I was with another a PhD archaeology student from the United States. Uh, there were not just uh, one pile of stone, there were thousands of piles of stones. And uh, uh, I had, by chance, ended up at the largest kind of uh, Bronze Age ritual site um, in Mongolia, um, uh, dating about uh, 1000 BC. And I I got on top of the uh, of the central mound, and I looked around, and I couldn't believe my eyes because uh, the central mound is a burial mound, but all around the site, um, arranged in rows, were these smaller uh, mounds, stone mounds of about uh, oh four, three, four feet high, um, and there were between a thousand and two thousand. And I asked the, the historian, I said what is this place? The guy said, oh, and he gave me the name of the site, which, which had to do with, you know, it's a stone-built ancient site. I said, yeah, but what's in the mounds? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have no idea? He says, no. Now, some, of course, Mongolian archaeologists who were not with us knew what these were, and um, uh, Russian archaeologists had worked at some of these sites, but no one had worked at this particular site, and um, at that moment, I was, uh, it was absolutely amazing. I decided I was going to do a project there and we stayed there five years. Oh, wow. Under these mounds were, um, um, were horse heads and uh, under every one of them oriented in a particular direction. And so we excavated dozens and dozens of these uh, mounds and, uh, and, figured out why they were pointing in a particular direction. And so all of that was very exciting. In the same, uh, the next year, we were also uh, taken by Mongolian uh, herders, locals who we knew. They said that there were piles of mounds in the mountain. So we went up there and um, there were, uh, and the Jeep was very difficult and we climbed, we went up the mountain uh, the hill, and there was a plateau there, and uh, we found ourselves in a cemetery of about, um, you know, three, four hundred burials dating from 2,000 years ago, but huge burials. So we mapped that and published that. So all of these, um, you know, these kinds of discoveries cannot happen in the United States, right? A site, sites and cemeteries this size um, have been discovered and, you know, surveyed and excavated and published for a long, long time. But here we were in the middle of central Mongolia, and suddenly we were coming across these amazing sites that no one had written about. Um, now, you've got to be careful with this, this concept of discovery. You know, we did not discover the sites. <laughs> Locals yeah. have known about these sites for thousands of years, right? So these were very exciting moments in East Asia. Uh, that I've never encountered in China, for example, uh, but in, in during my Mongolia project, uh, these were yeah these were wonderful moments that I cherish. That's very exciting. Thank you for for sharing that story. I was sitting over here going, I, I couldn't imagine like what is it? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I wanted to know. So with those those different stories, um, I wanted to also ask you about you have uh, led groups of students with you on research projects and also for them to also discover 
some re uh, do their own research or discover things um, in, in Asia. Can you talk about those experiences? Well, I, I think ultimately these come out of my, so, you know, I'm interested in China. I would say more generally East Asia and now increasingly Southeast Asian archaeology. Uh, my interest in archaeology, but also my love of teaching. So, you know, like many people at IUP, um, um, I'm dedicated to doing the best I can as a teacher and as a mentor. And so those were opportunities to, to, to combine all three of these, these things. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people who feel like me about, you know, travel and archaeology and teaching may not necessarily agree that, you know, this is the best use of our time. Because taking students um, to East Asia uh, requires a lot of planning, as you very well know. And um, it, it's not just logistical planning, but, but once you're there, you're, you know, you're, you're responsible for, for young people who maybe have never traveled, who suddenly miss home. So, uh, so during that entire period of planning and while you're in, uh, in East Asia, while I was in East Asia, I'll, I'll, my focus was on you know, making sure my students were okay. That was my first. Um, and, and then all kinds of circumstances uh, uh, come up that you have to deal with. Um, you have students who, um, I'm gonna talk about the challenges here first. You have students who really, you know, have never been on a plane, um, they've never traveled, and then suddenly they're in Mongolia and they're sheep you know, grazing outside their tent, or who suddenly have to wash in an ice cold river, or, or who can't, we don't, we didn't have vegetables, or, or who, who are seeing their, their dinner, sheep, uh, you know, being slaughtered in the afternoon, or, you know, myriad of things like this, where students are, um, uh, have to go through this kind of this emotional process. Um, and then there are things that happened uh, that happened that are unexpected. So on one occasion, I was with uh, three students, um, which that was about 15 years ago. And that's where, uh, so back up a little bit, we were in Hong Kong going into China. Um, and that's where, uh, it's the time of the bird flu, actually. And when we got to uh, Guangzhou, they, they took our temperature on the train. And when we got to Guangzhou, they did it again. And one of the students, um, maybe you remember that, uh, Jessica, one of the students was, uh, you know, at a high temperature. So they put us in a, an ambulance and they were all dressed up, you know, in their suits, PPEs. And, um, and then she was, um, there were very few cases in China at that time, um, hadn't been contained yet. And um, uh, she was there for a week um, and uh, quite scared, of course. And uh, I almost got put in there as well, but my other students were at the, <laughs> were waiting, they didn't speak Chinese, they were at the, um, at the train station. So I managed to convince the doctors to let me go because I was taking care of my other student who was sick. They did. Then we had to wait a week. So that entire trip suddenly was, I, it wasn't a week. By then it was five or six days. But that's, 
So, so we miss our trains, our hotels, the places where we are. So we had to reorganize the entire trip at that point. So, so you know, when you're traveling with students, you have to be ready for these, uh, these unexpected uh, uh, problems. So, so those are the challenges. And, um, and sometimes the students don't behave in ways that they should. And even after we've told them many, many times, and you've told them even more <laughs> than I have, and so we have to deal with, with those as well. Uh, but overall, um, um, there've been uh, positive experiences. One thing I do know is they, it almost invariably they've had a, a positive impact on their lives and development. Um, the, I will say there was, there is something else I realized and I realized that just a couple of years ago. So one of the reasons I, I brought students to, um, to China and Mongolia is to hopefully turn them into archeologists of Mongolia or China, you know. Um, I even teach a class in Chinese archeology. span So I took many of those students to China thinking, you know, wow, we'll be able to, uh, to have uh, some of these get graduate degrees and uh, they'll become colleagues one day. And to this date, after 20 years, not a single one has decided to do that. They love their trip, they learned a lot, so, um, so I, had to, I had to come face to face with that realization. You know, there's somewhere in Canada, there's, there's faculty members saying that, you know, to this day, there's no marine biologists that were in my class. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. Our teachers, yeah, the way we look at ourselves, yeah, we, we don't often always realize what our teachers um, think of us and the expectations they have. The students... But Students were going to China for the adventure, the experience, not to become Chinese archaeologists. It's interesting to hear the different stories you've had from going with your parents when you were 12 to the impact that that had and um, the people that you met back in Canada that you ended up going to Hong Kong. And it seems like there's a lot of relationships and a lot of interest, sociological interest that have helped you to travel different places. Um, whether that's the, the people that you've met, the influence that you've had because of meeting people. And um, I think a lot of us are that way. You know, I don't think, I think, you know, you said you read a lot, um, a lot of books and things, but it was the people that you met, um, the experiences that you had that led you to another adventure. Or when you were in Hong Kong, you um, had a professor who enabled you to go to the UK to study um, and, and you did that. So I think when you're talking about taking students abroad, it's, um, and you know, we laugh about them not being East Asian archeologists, but they're, I'm sure they're somewhere going, I had this amazing experience and this is how it has changed my life. Just like you've sort of talked about the different things that have, have changed your life. I'm wondering yeah. if you hadn't gone to the UK when you were 12, how different, if anything, your life would have been if it would have been as international? I don't know if you've ever given any um, So there, there are two parts to this. The first one about the, the impact on the students. It's interesting you say that because over the past few months, including three, four days ago, I've received messages and, and the one three, four days ago was an actual letter explaining how much how positive that impact of traveling to China with me had been on their lives. 
when when I was with them, these students in China, they just seemed to be enjoying themselves and being, you know, young adults and doing things that they shouldn't have or they did things they should have. And they were all wonderfully nice and bright. But I couldn't tell at that moment that the trip was having such an impact on them. And it's only now, as they get older, a couple of years later, that they, they say that to me. So it's not always obvious uh, when we're traveling with students, the, the extent and nature of the impact on the students. Some students have a negative experience and I've had to deal with that, but almost always it's, um, uh, there've been positive experiences. So it's nice to hear from them, even though there is no way they're going to be pursuing Chinese archeology. span <laughs> Regarding the trip to, uh, to England when I was 12, I, I have wondered about that. You know, I, I came, I come from a, you know, a working class family um, from, you know, Eastern Canada and none of my relatives had traveled or my parents' friends had traveled. There was no really reason why, you know, I should want to travel or end up in the United States for that matter, right? Which I have, I've been for 30 years. Um, <clears throat> My, my parents moved to England because my father was transferred um, to a subsidiary of his company specifically for a few years to do something and then we returned. But the, but the idea was never that their children were going to suddenly get the travel bug. And, and uh, my brother who's younger than I had the same experiences than I had. I mean, he was not that much younger. And uh, we went to the same French school and we went to Europe together on many trips with my parents. Uh, but my brother um, is very unlike me. He did not get that travel bug and um, he's a successful person and a very nice person. And, uh, but he, he, he wonders why, and he's told me, why are you doing all this? You know, <laughs> is, there, is there a real reason? Why are you doing all this? And uh, my mother once said that uh, when we were in Europe, she uh, recognized in a way that I don't understand because of course at 12, I, I don't remember how I behaved. She recognized that this was going to have an impact on me. And uh, maybe because of personality or, for, or whatever, uh, uh, that's exactly what happened. And from that point on, I always looked forward to traveling. Um, and so certainly if I had not gone to, um, to England, um, I, I don't know. It's very possible that I would have led a, a more kind of constrained life in Canada. I wouldn't be talking to you, I think, right now. <laughs> well, let's think about um, in the complete opposite direction. So if um, pandemic aside, uh, what are, your, what are your plans for the future in regarding travel and research? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to speak in a little bit of detail of how um, the type of research I do kind of overlaps with travel. And people like me uh, make different types of decisions. So um, I have a, you know, the, the field of East Asian archaeology is not very large outside East Asia. So we tend to know each other and I have a lot of colleagues in the field, of course. 
And many of my colleagues, um, they plan every summer to go abroad to do field work, excavations, surveys. And um, that's what I did for many years. I mean, when I was in Mongolia, uh, I mean, I was very isolated. Those were expeditions. I'd have to go to the capital and prepare, you know, hire jeeps and drivers and buy food. And we had a little convoy and, and uh, I'd be kind of isolated for six weeks at a time. I had a satellite phone, I would speak. And, and there came a time where I, I realized that I didn't, um, I didn't like being separated from my family. And especially after my son was born, and he's, he's nine, so he was born in turning 10 soon, he was born in 2010. So I made a decision at that point to do something um, different from my colleagues. Um, and rather than going abroad and spending, you know, six weeks, seven weeks, eight, eight weeks doing field work, I decided to um, constrain my field work to much smaller projects. So, so now I go to Vietnam and I can carry out research in the span of 10 days with two other people or three other people. So it's much smaller, it's much more flexible. And, um, and then attend conferences and travel around and go to museums. So my, uh, my research is much more flexible than it used to be because there are uh, fewer people on the team and the collection of data uh, is easier. And, and by that, I mean collection of data from artifacts and museums. So that's been my decision. And the hope is that I can continue doing exactly that in Hong Kong and in mainland China. Uh, traveling to museums, talking to archaeologists, and collecting this site, this kind of data, returning home, and then publishing it, writing about it, without the large projects I used to do. But many of co my colleagues continue to do these projects, and they're gone two months a year. I don't do that anymore. That's my choice, though. Yeah, um, I know you're you're part of a uh, professional journal. Can you talk of to if? especially if we have listeners who want to know more about this field and what you do. Um, can you talk a little bit about the journal? Um, well, there are two things I, I will add in relation to that regarding the kind of professional decisions that I made in relation to my travel. Along with not doing so much field work, I decided to become more involved professionally, what we call professional unpaid service, right? And um, I've been involved in two things uh, specifically. Um, I've been involved in, I told you that there aren't too many of, of us in East Asian archeology. span I've been involved in an association, an academic association uh, called the Society for East Asian Archeology, span S-E-A-A. And I've been involved with them for 20 years. And, uh, and they're about, uh, right now we have about 500 members. So it's not huge, but it's large enough, international members. And uh, three years ago, I was elected president of that uh, association. So I'm presently now the president of that association. And one of the things we do is promote East Asian archeology span to, you know, everyone. Facilitate communication, you know, uh, among scholars of East Asia, we organize conferences. Uh, but the other thing that I felt very strongly about is uh, promoting the field to undergraduates. 
And the reason for that is this is the kind of specialized field that typically undergraduates are unaware of. You know, in order to be in this field, you have to speak Japanese or Korean or Chinese or a combination of those, right? So um, people enter the, this kind of profession rather late. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I'd never heard of such a thing, um, such a, not only profession, but, but this such an association, which, which in fact was um, uh, first uh, came about in 1996. So um, we have a student award program now, which we've developed, which involves undergraduate students from around the world. So uh, we're bringing in both undergraduate and graduate students um, uh, to, so, so that they can show uh, to the rest of us who are older the kind of research they do. In fact, we're just having to cancel our um, conference next year in Korea because of the pandemic. And we've just agreed with uh, the hosts, the organizers of the conference, that instead of an in-person conference, um, we're going to have um, a virtual student conference for, for mostly graduate students, but also undergraduates. So we're excited about that. And the actual in-person conference will be also in Korea, the same university, but the following year. So that's, so I spent a lot of time involved with that association, right? The other thing I do is, um, well, I didn't look for that, uh, but I was asked to do it and I had to think about it because it's very time consuming. Um, I was asked to become uh, the editor of uh, the oldest publication on East Asian archeology span called Asian Perspectives. Um, the actual title is Asian Perspective, the Journal of Archeology span of Asia and the Pacific. Um, so I was asked to do that a year ago, um, and uh, I had to think about it because, you know, being editor of, a, of an academic journal requires a lot of time, um, a lot of dedication. Um, so I agreed to do it, um, and so I've, I started about five months ago, and so I'm now, I'm now the editor of this journal, and now we have a co-editor, thank God, um, and we're receiving submissions, you know, all the time from people from all over East Asia. Um, and the, uh, we have a book review editor, an editorialist. In fact, we have a meeting this afternoon um, in a few hours, and the interesting thing is it's really, really hard to plan uh, these, uh, these meetings because we're all over the world, like from, from Fiji, to France, to here, to Hawaii, to the California coast. So those Zoom meetings are, are really hard to plan. So um, that is now taking up a lot of my time, uh, the editorship of this, um, of this journal. Um, so those are my two activities in the field. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. So I want to I want to pull out uh, a, or want to talk about a quote that you have said about traveling, um, and it's uh, by Batuta. Is that right? Did I pronounce it? Batuta. Yeah. Right. Um, I'll let you explain that in a minute. And the quote that you you have pulled out is uh, traveling. It leaves you speechless, then turns you into a storyteller. Can you explain why this quote has sort of spoken to you and your life um, about 
travel and your experience? Well, I, I think it probably applies to only certain kinds of people who like to talk, like me, <laughs> <laughs> who like to tell stories. Um, so on those occasions, and there have been many where during my travels, I encountered something or someone that was really breathtaking, that literally left me speechless, that was so exciting. Um, you know, after a few seconds, what, um, what I want to do is to tell others about it. And uh, so maybe that's the teacher in me, right? The instructor, the educator in me who wants to do that. Uh, but the storytelling, um, that other part, um, doesn't mean, well, it means different things. On the one hand, it means that as you travel a lot and as you get older and study the histories of different parts of the world and the archaeologies, you start uh, being able to put these parts together into a, a bigger narrative, a bigger story. And that's very exciting for, for someone like me, you know, that you've you found this and it relates to something that happened somewhere else. Um, and uh, uh, so that kind of storytelling really means, means uh, you know, recreating history. But storytelling also uh, can mean something else. Um, I, I, sometimes, I sometimes ask my students when I talk about archaeology whether, um, you know, I remind them of anyone in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I mean, I can't say that I wasn't thinking Indiana Jones when you were talking. Exactly. About Do I look I like Indiana I, I Jones? Back a bit. <laughs> and the students, after fumbling a little bit and looking down, you know, one of them always says, "No, not really." <laughs> and, um, Do you have the hat? I I have I have uh, hats, but they just don't make me look like him. I can assure <laughs> you, nothing I can do. You know, this is this is an issue. You know, it's a, a lot. Of, the public generally thinks of archaeology in relation to these kinds of media presentations, right? It's you're after treasure, you're, you're battling snakes, the pyramid is falling all around you, you know, uh, you're jumping out of airplanes. You know, I've never done that. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the adventure happens in my, in my own head. And uh, maybe the storytelling is a little bit of uh, me um, traveling around the world and being part of this kind of adventure. And so when I talk to others um, about what I've done, um, I'm excited because I think it was cool and exciting. Uh, and what I found was cool and exciting. And I see myself part of a story, but others don't necessarily see it that way. Uh, they might think, again, why did you go to central Mongolia and ate mutton for, for two months? You know. Uh, it's not it's not an adventure. It's not a great story to them, but I'm drawn to just um, story storytelling. Um, the last thing I'll say, however, is you know the other end of of storytelling. We have to be careful as archaeologists not to make up stories that don't reflect reality because it's um, it's pretty easy to do that sometimes. So. Uh, I guess the quote from me, by the way, Ibn Battuta was a Muslim traveler from the first half of the 14th century. And um, he went, you know, he went all over to all the Muslim uh, regions of the world, but he also traveled to India and Southeast Asia and China. 
um, it's said that he traveled enough to go around the world like three times, 70,000 miles or, it, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, um, so, so yeah, you know, if I, if I see something that renders me, that leaves me speechless, that's so exciting, I'm gonna wanna talk about it. Um, not just in my own head, but I'm gonna wanna share it. And we're so glad that you do. Thanks. So how can listeners keep in contact with you and follow your various projects? Well, I, I need to organize. I'm, so I, I never, when I grew up and, um, and, and got my PhD and, and started to go to conference, one thing I never did was to develop my own website. Uh, and my wife now says I need to promote myself a little bit more and, and put together a website, but it's not done yet. Um, I, I, I have a presence on academia.edu uh, where my publications are, like, like most people. So anyone who goes to academia.edu will find, search me, will find me there. Um, you can Google me and you'll see other some of those publications. My CV is on the academia.edu uh, site as well. I guess the best way really would be to, uh, to email me. And um, I get emails from all kinds of people asking all kinds of questions about East Asian archaeology. And uh, especially in my role with the Society for East Asian Archaeology, I get, I get a lot of those questions. And I'm always happy to, to answer them. Um, Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So that concludes today's episode with my guest, Francis Allard. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your memories and ongoing research with us. I also want to thank Indiana University of Pennsylvania, the Office of International Education, and the Education Abroad Community for the support of this podcast. A big thanks goes to Case Marshall for his technical and creative support. Thanks for spending time with us today, and I hope you found some inspiration in today's stories. Thanks for spending time with us today, and I hope you found some inspiration in today's stories. You can subscribe to Tales from Abroad on anchor.fm slash talesfromabroad or wherever you get your podcasts. To see a picture from today's episode, follow us on Instagram at IUPHawksAbroad. One of my favorite quotes is by Simon Sinek. Life is beautiful not because of the things we see or do. Life is beautiful because of the people we meet. So have a beautiful day. Join us for another episode when we explore more tales from abroad.